<laughs> the thing that was coming to mind was oh man but i don't want to yell oh man at you so i'm trying to find a different phrasing be like the, the kool-aid person <laughs> oh yeah Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vickery. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, Steph, how's your week going? Hey, hey, uh, it's going really well. So I've officially started my four weeks of vacation. So I'm going through what I think right now is like decompressing, where I'm trying to convince myself to not check Slack, don't check Basecamp, don't check all the things. I'm probably going to have to delete those apps to really embrace this mode fully. So it's already off to a good start. Cool. I'm uh, envious of that block of time. And I'm interested to see specifically at the end of it, how do you feel? Do you feel fundamentally different? Or like, I don't know, you should have like a journal entry at the end of each week and see how does it evolve over time. But uh yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, you're going to be snowboarding for most of it, right? That's your plan? Yeah, I don't know if we've shared that bit. But yeah, I have traveled out west to Utah and going to be spending most of my time snowboarding. So that will be the primary activity. And then I have, I've started that journal that you just mentioned, because I'm also mm-hmm. intrigued to see how this goes. So but I've actually I'm doing it daily where I'm just sort of like making little notes because I want to see if there is like a shift in, you know, what I'm interested in and just sort of like collecting my thoughts at the end of the day, see how things are going. And also it serves as a helpful reminder to to focus on some more fun activities versus always focusing on work-related stuff. And then something that I didn't ask you last time we chat about this, but I'm really curious to hear from your perspective is if you had this chunk of time off these four weeks, what would you do? What would you be excited to invest in or maybe not invest in during those four weeks? Huh, that's interesting. I I don't know that I have any large like research project sort of things. I guess the one that's been on my list for a while that I haven't made any headway on and feels like it would be beneficial to have sort of a block of time is Rust. That's sort of the programming language paradigm, et cetera, especially some of the WASM stuff, WebAssembly, that Rust seems to have best-in-class support for. There's some really interesting things there, but Rust is it's a whole new programming language. It's an entirely different thing, whereas like exploring Svelte and Inertia recently, those have been the big sort of investigations that I've done. Those were much more incremental in terms of what I was already doing. So perhaps unsurprisingly, my answer is a research project about a programming language. But actually, my more general answer would be uh, getting really particular about my like day-to-day routine. That's the thing that I've been slowly working on throughout all of the now that I work from home thing. I would love to just dial that in even more and figure out like like you were talking about with journaling. I've heard a lot of people talk about journaling in the morning, morning pages, that sort of thing. And so like structuring a day in a really comfortable way and not having that giant block of work in the middle of it, but being able to do like, this is my research hours. And then I go for a long walk in the woods and then I, you know, that sort of thing. So yeah, my, my first answer is probably my truest answer, which is I would learn Rust. And then my second answer is I would try and have a really nice daily routine. Nice. So I do want to verify, though, doing nothing is totally a fair option. So having doing nothing as an option, you would still very much pursue rest and some other, like you said, daily routine improvements. It depends if there were other things like I ski rather than snowboarding. But like if that were an option, I would probably lean into that, although that's not nothing. Uh, I don't do nothing. That's that's not really a setting that I have as a human, but more like just fun and not actually learning or self-improvement or whatever it is. That's yes, I like that answer. That is a good answer. But given the current times and the sort of not going out as much, 
I feel like I would be a little more limited in that. So granted, skiing and snowboarding, I think, is one of the great examples where like you're sort of fundamentally kept at a distance from other people and everybody's wearing masks and like it just kind of works out. So maybe it's the perfect answer that you found there. That is a nice thing that has made this activity available to us is because for all the reasons that you just said, and then also the resorts are taking measurements to restrict how many people are on the mountain. And then, I mean, they're huge. So I'm really kind of curious what that number is, but then they're also limiting who's on the gondola. You're only supposed to ride with people that you're traveling with. So they've also added some safety precautions to keep people safe. That has worked out nicely where we can still snowboard, but also stay safe. So you're going to learn rust? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, hard no. <laughs> oh, okay. Weird, but I got it. That's fine. Different strokes. <laughs> no, but I, I did spend on a, on a slightly less snowboarding topic. I did spend some time recently looking into a new feature in Rails 6.1 that I'm really excited about. And it's related to how the air object for active model is being encapsulated and returned. So right now, errors that are returned by active model are essentially, they have the behavior of a hash. So they have attributes as keys and arrays that then match to messages and then the error message itself. And then you can access the unformatted messages hashed by using that messages method on the error object. Or say if you have your model.errors, you could do model.errors and then the square brace syntax and the symbol of the value that you want to check. So maybe it's for first name or whichever validation error that you're looking into. But with Rails 6.1, the recent changes to active model errors, the errors will appear as object of an error class instead of a hash. And then to help with filtering, there's a new where method that's provided. And then that can be used to find the error message for a specific attribute. And there's a really wonderful blog post that's written by the person who introduced this feature, who's Lou La La La. And in their blog post, they highlight why the change was introduced, how to upgrade methods that will now return a deprecation warning, and some of the other features for the new error objects. But it's really neat. I have some other thoughts about this, but I'm going to pause right there and get your reaction. I'm excited. More objects, more classes, those primitive envy as a general thing, like having hashes and arrays is the way that we move data around is one of those things that every time I move away from it and I introduce an object and I encapsulate things in a class and do some data hiding and all those fun things, uh, I'm a big fan of it. And so the fact that this will be available, I'm really interested to see actually what the API will look like and how code will change around this. But fundamentally, this sounds like a great change and one that I will be a big fan of. Yeah, I'm really excited for it because I really enjoy seeing air handling that's optimized for developer happiness and then treated as like this VIP status in our code, or maybe it's VIB for a very important behavior instead of person. So then I don't know why, but for some reason I go to the idea of like a club. So you've got like all these behaviors and features that are standing outside the club, hoping to get in and get noticed by the developer working the door. And I feel like air handling is always at the back of that line. And like we do just enough to get by, but it's always something that we still feel pain around. So I get really excited when I see error handling sort of elevated to that very important status. I I love the club analogy there. And generally what you're saying about elevating errors to be more of a first class concern is definitely something that I feel. And I agree with the idea that like more that we can elevate errors to be a first class concern or something that we're always thinking about, because it turns out the amount of time that our program is doing exactly the correct thing with exactly the right inputs is a vanishingly small amount. And it turns out a lot of the time we're dealing with edge cases and things like that. So how well can we encapsulate that? Is it weird try catch blocks or is it more of a, a first class concern? And I talked a, a few episodes back about my explorations into dry monads and dry RB and some of the railway oriented programming stuff, which I really loved for that. But I'm super interested to see what that looks like in core rails because the, the closer it is to part of just being in the stack, the better, I think. 
Well, when you do check it out, I recommend going and looking at the PR for this feature because it's it's a heck of a story in terms of where Lulala has decided that this is a change that they would really like to make into the Rails code base. In fact, they built a gem specifically around this to elevate the status of errors so they really match more of that object-oriented design that we're used to. And so when they were bringing it over to Rails, there was a lot of work to go with it. There's also a lot of thoughtfulness around, well, let's make sure that this is backwards compatible to a certain number of Rails versions. I forgot how far they go back, but I think there's like a limitation there and where they make sure that something is compatible. I think with like the most two recent versions is how they base it, but I could be wrong there. This person spent a lot of time working on this feature, and it's a really great example, in my opinion, of just really healthy, like professional, positive communication between everybody that is involved in this feature and interested in seeing it over the finish line. And there's even one point where some folks are like, I don't know if this is going to land because this is such a big feature and we're a bit nervous about this. And the other person's like, well, let's keep a positive tone and see where we go. So it's definitely worth going through and reading the whole PR itself and reaching out and thanking Lulala for their effort on this because they commented in this PR that they spent, I think, around like 200 hours working on this and ensuring that everything is properly deprecated and that everything is backwards compatible and then fielding all the requests that people had. So yeah, magnificent piece of work. Uh, Definitely recommend looking there as you are then checking out the new feature. Fantastic investigative journalism there, Steph. I'm excited to follow all of those threads because that all super great feature, good story, example of working in public. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, the mention of the 200 hours part also really impressed me and was a really nice reminder that people are spending so much of their time to then improve the Rails ecosystem and just in general with open source. So that was a really nice reminder to be thankful to everyone that's contributing to these projects. So that's a little bit of what I've been up to this week. What have you been up to? This is partly this week, but also it's been sort of an ongoing project for me. I have a small app that I maintain that's just sort of my like, at this point, it's a grab bag of random things that I want that I don't have either an iPhone app or another thing that exists in the world that does it quite the way I want. So I've maintained this app of my own. It has a journal in it. It has a couple other features, just random things that I wanted and I wanted to exist in a certain way. And also it, it ends up being sort of a testing ground for different technologies. So I've ported it between a few different things. Most recently, I moved it into Inertia and was very happy with that. Haven't actually made it into Svelte yet, but that's the next one that I'm planning. Actually, I'm interested to back up for just a second. Do you have any sort of web app things that you maintain for yourself? Any like personal tools or whatever? Or are you do you not have apps that you maintain on the weekend when you shouldn't be? (laughs) I appreciate how you added that last little bit, because I was going to say I don't. And I feel a little guilty saying that. Yeah, I wanted to frame it so that the I think the correct answer would be no, this is my job. And, uh, you know, I enjoy it. And I maybe look into it from time to time. But no, I work Monday through Friday. And then I don't. I don't have as clear of a separation, Mm -hmm. it seems. Yeah, I think you you tend to fall into more of that tinkering space, where as part of your hobby, you really enjoy playing around with new technologies. It's why you're so great at bringing that new new to the show. And for me, I tend to prioritize all of my hobbies away from the screen, just because I feel like I already spend enough time in front of a screen that I try to do all the outdoorsy or just non-screen hobbies that I can. But I do think it's really cool that you have this breakable toy space. So it almost feels like there's two themes here, one around whether folks enjoy developing as a hobby, where I think you and I are a little different in that regard, but then having that breakable toy space to then essentially get to play with new functionality, new features. I think that's really cool. I do wish I had that, not so much that I want to pursue it in my off time, but then just something where I could test stuff out and then explore some new functionality, maybe like during our Friday self-investment days, that would be a, a really good opportunity to leverage something like that. Have you found it incredibly helpful to have that space to then try out new technologies? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. That's a, I would say a large reason as to why I've kept this thing alive. It's had many different lives and it's been different apps. It actually, for a while, it was a few different applications. And then at one point I folded them together because I realized I didn't actually want to maintain multiple like that. That was just work that I didn't want to do. But having one of these that just happens to have a handful of features is really useful. And like I used to have a to-do list in it because obviously that's a thing that you build when you make your own little web app. But at one point I was like, I'm not getting enough value out of this. And it's actually a lot of, like they're hard to build, especially if you want to add fancy stuff so i at some point a while back switched over to using trello and that's been fine and i've been very happy with that decision whereas there are other small pieces in it particularly the journal bit has been useful because i've been able to add like i have a reminder thing that goes out and says oh a year ago you talked about this which i feel like there are platforms that have that but i got to set it up to exactly the cadence that i wanted and different things and it's not as big of a piece of software that it takes up a lot of time, but I'm able to tweak it. And and like you said, the, the breakable toy idea, this is a piece of software that I do care about. And so I really don't want to break it, but I could because it's only me and I can fix it and it'll be fine. And so being able to walk that line and try out new technologies in the context of that. For a while, there was the tell me when it closes application that I was maintaining. And I think it's still alive somewhere. But at this point, GitHub has actually subsumed the behavior natively into the platform. So I'm like, whatever, they got it. It's fine. But that was also a really good like this is a real Rails app. It matters a bit to people. But like if it forgets to send out a reminder email for a few days and we have to like backfill that, that'll be fine. Like no one is relying on this to get work done. And that ended up being a really fun exploration. We did some work with testing and things like that in it. Matt Sumner and I worked on that project together. It definitely is nice to have those spaces that I can go to to explore different technologies or programming approaches or I want to try out this new library or things like that. And so it does really fill that void for me. But yeah, so to get a little more specific about it, this, like I said, has a bunch of different features in it. So the journaling things one bit, but most recently, my wife and I have gotten into the habit of playing a game called Monopoly Deal, uh, which as an aside is the greatest game ever invented. It is a perfect game. I wrote a whole Twitter thread about it, why I believe it's the perfect game, but it plays for like two to five people. It scales really nicely within that. It plays in like 15 minutes. You can learn it pretty quickly. It's just on the right edge of like luck and skill so that my wife and I have now played a lot of games. We're still engaged, but new people can join pretty quickly and they're not going to you know, lose every round. So it's a perfect game. That's a thing that I'll say. But because they play pretty quickly and because we've actually gotten very efficient at it, we will end up playing what started as best out of threes, but then turned into best out of three, best out of threes. So up to what is the, the max there is eight games, I think, or something. I forget how the math works. It's actually surprisingly hard math. So what I wanted to build was a little abacus almost for keeping track of who won the most recent game. And I have little avatar pictures of us that are nonsense. And turns out the math for best out of three, best out of three. I think I was just having an off day, but I really struggled with that. TypeScript was my savior because I got to have little data structures and manipulate them. And what happens when you click the this person one button? Well, it just pushes something onto an array, but then we re-render it. We don't need to like break it into the threes. It was a whole thing. Reminded me very much of the game that you and I actually separately but in parallel built for Thoughtbot end of year party in Elm, the reaction game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. That was a lot of fun. But I think one of the key takeaways for me was just the importance of getting the data model right, because I was struggling a bunch with actually getting this thing to work. And I was also, if we're being honest, quite frustrated with myself because I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm, I should be able to do this. I've been programming for a number of years now. I should be able to make a thing that keeps a best out of three, best out of th like this shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> a lot of it was about getting the data structure right and not trying to 
have too much of the presentational concerns in the fundamental data structure, just trying to like what is true in the world and make sure I have the minimal data structure that represents that. And then I introduced a bunch of functions that could turn that base data structure into intermediate representations, which were then better for rendering out to the screen. So I could just pass that into a React component. It's like, cool, I just render these and I render that. And that was better. But it was a lot of fiddling to get to that data structure that worked for me, which I think was just an array at the end of the day. And I just pushed things into the array. That feels so true in regards. I also had one of those moments earlier this week before I started, you know, full vacation mode where I was still working on a project where I just ran into a thing where I was like, I should be able to do this. I've been a programmer for a number of years. Like this should be easy. And it was just one of those moments where it tripped me up that looking back now is kind of funny. But in the moment, I was a bit heated about it with myself. <laughs> Some Aww. of those self-truths. <laughs> you got to be kind to yourself in those moments. I was equally. Yeah. Or I think I had that reaction. I was like, it's fine. Calm down. Take it. Probably, and I think I talked myself into stepping away from it for a little while, walking away. Yeah. And it was one of those things where I sort of dug myself in and then I backed away for a little bit, cleared my head, came back. And when I came back to it, I was like, oh, I should just change things. And then it's easy and a real argument for the power of going for a walk. Definitely. Yeah, I feel like at that point where I'm that frustrated is because my brain is essentially being stubborn to like solve it in one way. And I need to step away and give it some more creative space to then come back to it. But yeah, it was an interesting little microcosm of programming, really, uh, where I had this thing that I wanted to do. The data structures were really important and just being reminded of that. TypeScript was super, super valuable, even in this tiny little nonsense nothing app that I was building for a stupid game <laughs> that I play way too much. Still, I found such value in having the types and having like being able to refactor those few times that I was changing out the data model. And frankly, coming back to the idea of the breakable toy, I do really find a lot of value in that. And it, it is effort and it's weird effort. And that's why like some of the bigger pieces of it I've given up on and been like, this is not worth it. Uh, but I have found the value in having this real live production application that is just my own that only I ever see. So yeah, just just some fun things to share there. Yeah, well, I'm super excited to play this game now, which is, you know, declaratively the perfect game as you've announced. So it has a lot of hype to live up to. So I'm excited for that. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. We have a listener question that I'm excited to chat about today. It's in regards to context switching. And this question comes from Edward Lovall, who's a thoughtbotter. So Edward wrote in with the question, we sometimes find ourselves in the role of a project manager, for example, leading an engineering initiative with a small team. And I found it difficult to switch from mostly developing to mostly communicating. So explaining overall goals to engineers, presenting up to management, estimating timelines, etc. Have either of you experienced this and do you have any advice? All right, Chris. So how do you manage context switching? Oh, this is a fun one. There's a lot here. And I think some of it might be specific 
to being a consultant developer. And so inherently, there are, are certain questions that we may be asked or certain ways of working that may come up more for us than for developers that are not working, that are just part of a product team. But frankly, I, I think some of it does really apply to everyone. I think unless you're in sort of a very algorithmic heads down developer in the corner, I go away for a month and I come back with the algorithm, which I don't think really exists much in the world. Communication is fundamentally a part of what we're doing. In specific to handling context switching, there's a couple of tactics that I've used around batching and trying to structure it up. But at some point, I think if you do find yourself being pulled in too many directions, I, I think the thing that I found valuable is to detach myself from the deliverable work. So I'm probably not going to be shipping any features this week personally, but I'll have conversations. I'll pair with other developers who will then take that work and run with it. And I'll try and be that interface, you know, connecting different groups. But ideally, I'm sort of setting a pattern and showing hopefully what everyone will start to do more. I've definitely worked in organizations where there's this very strong divide or even, I think in the worst version of it, some animosity between product and engineering or between sales and engineering or between support and engineering. And ideally, in my mind, they're very collaborative interactions. There's a lot of, we're here to help each other out. We're all rowing in the same direction. We're all trying to get the same things done, support the customer, deliver the features, have a good experience, et cetera, et cetera. And so the idea that developers would be siloed away and protected from that is something that I don't think it needs to change fundamentally, but I think ideally most developers have a little bit of conversation with each of those different groups at some point. And so, yeah, I said a bunch of things there, but to reiterate, if I find that I am getting pulled in too many directions and I'm finding the context switching hard, I may just accept that for now my role is primarily communicator and actively try and take myself out of the development bottleneck. Still do pairing and things like that because I should be doing some implementation work, but accept the fact that maybe for a period of time, that's just not really feasible. But ideally, if I do end up in that mode, use that as a time to say like, okay, but everybody else, let's start doing that same sort of thing. But yeah, that's that's a couple of ideas. What do you think of that and, and what comes to mind for you? Yeah, I really like the idea of what you said earlier about detaching from deliverable work, because that is where it does get really complicated, where if you are going to be pulled in a bunch of directions, but then you are also responsible for chunks of work getting shipped, you're going to have a hard time balancing all of that. So I really like the idea of you are the person that continues to push everything along, but that means that you do need to commit your time to the fact that you are going to be pulled in a bunch of different directions versus trying to commit yourself to essentially both. Because then I think you're going to have a very hard time and you're going to struggle there, at least I would in situations where I've been in that, where if I'm also trying to push over a couple features that week, but then I also know I'm getting pulled in a couple different directions, that's going to make for a very challenging week for me. In regards to how I've managed that context switching, some of the key things that I do is that I will plan focus time. So if I am in a spot where I know I'm getting pulled in different directions, but I also do have some work that I do need to ship, or perhaps it's just other tasks that I need to complete, that I will use my calendar more aggressively to then organize my day to understand what exactly I can achieve that day. And then also schedule focus time. So if I really need some heads down time to work on a task, I will also write and then rewrite my to-do list. So if I'm getting pulled in different directions and having to context switch, then it may change my priorities from like hour to hour. So I'm going to constantly revisit that list and shuffle to make sure that I'm working on the top priority. And then one thing that I used to believe in, but has, well, I wouldn't say I believed in, but something that I used to follow that I've since changed is where like, if I have these sort of like odd gaps in my schedule, like if I have 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there, I used to have the mindset of like, well, that's not really enough time for me to dive into anything. And instead I've seen that as a really great opportunity to instead use that 10, 15 minutes to check in on this other thing or just push something along. 
And I have found that by leveraging those little small gaps in my schedule, that has been really helpful because then if I have like these 10 minute gaps, but I have three or four of them throughout the day, then that actually adds up to really meaningful work getting done. That's interesting the way you're framing the the little gaps in the schedule, because I've definitely, I think, gone through a similar sort of pendulum swing where there was a period where I was like, these are the worst and I'm very sad, but often like... I can sometimes fit in code review in 15 minutes. I can look at a ticket and ask for clarification or highlight where I think there are issues. There are lots of async communication things that fit really well in those 10 to 15 minute blocks where it's like, I can't move everything, but I can do one thing just a little bit and move move it a little bit forward. Ideally, there's less of that going on, less of the like schedule Swiss cheese, but where it happens, I think being able to find the right sort of interstitial tasks that go in there and and fill things back up so you don't have a bunch of empty space and sadness. The other thing I'll, I'll say for me personally, and I imagine this varies individual to individual, but I've definitely found that trying to structure my thinking heads down work in the morning first thing so that I start my day. That's when I'm freshest. That's when I found that I'm able to make the most meaningful headway on the hard work, whatever that hard work happens to be at the time. And then I find that I still can do the communication, conversation, pairing, et cetera. Actually, pairing is really great because by the end of the day, my brain's a little bit fried and it's really useful to have that other person that is keeping me on task, but not in a like harsh taskmaster way but just like if i hit a wall they can step in for a moment and be like well what if we tried this whereas on my own i'm more prone in the afternoon to just being fried and and not coming up with an answer being like well i don't know how to program anymore so i guess i gotta throw in the towel for the day that's rough but here we are yeah, in the past, I've read some interesting articles that have some hard data that talks around, we can only make like X number of decisions each day, or we only have so much willpower. So if we're trying to do that all day long, like our decisions are going to get perhaps a bit worse and worse throughout the day. So trying to prioritize any hard decisions that you have earlier on in the day sounds really wise to me. And then I, I realized this may be something that you were getting at earlier, but I found the other words that I was looking for in regards to detaching yourself from work is I am someone that has FOMO in regards to development work, because especially if there's something really interesting being done, I'm like, oh, I want to be part of that. I want to know about it. Like I want to contribute. And if I realize that if I'm going to be hopping around and doing so much context switching, I can't really be part of it. And I have to just be okay with that. Like I am maybe more of that outsider where I hop in as needed to help push something along or to help on block somebody or answer questions, but otherwise just trusting the team to carry that forward. So then I can have more focus time for all the other tasks that are on my plate. Oh yeah. Developer FOMO or micromanaging in a, in a different frame of probably a similar thing. Like I want to be involved, but there's also the, especially if you're in sort of a team lead or in any sort of um, senior developer type role where you want to have visibility and ownership at some point, which I think is is probably a a pattern that you want to get out of. But I can see that being a thing that would show up in this case. I think the pairing is a good way to fix that where like you're pairing on most of the things you're not necessarily delivering it to all the way across the finish line, but you start you rough out the approach that we're going to take that sort of thing in parallel with someone. And then you leave it with them to sort of run with it. But it is interesting, like the team needs to have the right structure to be able to work in that way if a person who otherwise would be delivering a lot of features and, and sort of defining architecture or anything like that is now stepping away and doing more of the project management thing, which again is why I think that should ideally only be a temporary mode of working and sort of a stopgap to get us to a better place, but then get everybody more involved in the conversations or, or find a different way to have conversations. 
There is something that I've started doing more of lately that I have found really helpful. So I don't know if this will relate to others as well, but I have been striving to do more in the moment versus saying like, oh, I'll do this later. So one example could be if I'm in a meeting and we're talking about like, when should we schedule like our next get together? Or if I'm reviewing like a Trello board with somebody else and I'm like, oh, I'll come back to this and I'll make a note about it later. But I'm essentially like just creating this to-do list for myself. And I have really tried to like catch myself when I'm doing that. So anytime, like if I have that time and it's only going to take like just a, you know, a very short amount of time, just a minute or two, and I can go ahead and pop open calendars and then we can schedule that next meeting, or I can add just enough notes to a Trello ticket. So then I don't have this to do item, but I can pick it back up when it's relevant to be picked up again. That has been huge for me. And that is something that I have learned by watching others and watching them be very efficient with their time. Oh, that rings so true to me. That is definitely something that I have slowly over time really tried to work on myself. I think I I want to do a good job on a thing. And so I will say, oh, I'll do that later because then I'll have enough time to do it well. I'll, I'll get really, you know, write up that Trello ticket with intricate detail, but it's so much better in the moment. And actually, I think there's a really interesting parallel to a topic that we talk about on and off from time to time, the idea of like to-do items for refactoring or tech debt cards or things like that and saying like, oh, this is less good than it could be. And I think it'd be a pretty quick switch, but maybe later, maybe not now. And In general, I have found that the future version of me that has more time to really think it through is less good at it because they have less context. The version of me that's here right now that knows why we're talking about the thing that has it all right there in my head, that's the best version of me to do the thing. And obviously, there are limits to this. If it's like, oh, I've got to fundamentally refactor the billing system before I can change the text in one field, like obviously not that. But I think to capture what you were saying there, I have slowly ratcheted up the amount that I will try and do things in the moment. And I may even catch myself if I'm like, oh, this will be a 10 minute fix. It's fine. And I notice that it's 30 minutes later. I'm like, all right, let's put that in a branch, save that. We'll come back to that later because it is not as small as I had hoped it was. But the idea of like setting a calendar invite or adding a comment to something in Trello or any of those, absolutely. And tech deck cards because don't believe in tech deck cards. I love so much how you just tie those two things together because I feel so strongly about not creating refactor tickets and then just putting those in the queue to be pulled up because those are going to be really hard. They're they're not going to happen. I have feelings. We've talked about them. And the fact that you just tie that then to like that sort of personal context switching behavior of how I'm essentially doing that in the moment of I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll do this later after the meeting when I don't have like another person or so on this call. And I do want to be respectful of everyone's time. So I do want to clarify that if it's something that's just going to be real quick, or it also includes that person that feels like a good fit to then just take care of it in the moment. But yes, I just, I love how you brought those two together. Cause I realized I feel so strongly about one and the refactoring tickets, but I hadn't really applied that to like my own behavior. But now that I see it, I can't unsee it. Ultimately, I do think this is hard in regards to context switching. I think it is something that we are not good at and it's something that we want to minimize as much as possible, but yet it's something that we're going to have to do throughout the day and throughout our careers. So it's something that's worth thinking about how to do as well as we can, knowing this is something that most of us aren't optimized to do very well. So it's a really great question. Edward, I hope we gave you some helpful answers. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at S. Vicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. But, 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 but,
This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.